Australia calling. Australia calling the world. Station VLQ2. V for victory, L for liberty, Q for quality. Isn't that fabulous? The sound of Australia calling the world in the 1940s. Australia Calling was the name first given to the service now known as Radio Australia, which has broadcast news and entertainment from Australia to the world for 83 years. It was originally conceived as a wartime hedge against the propaganda coming from the Axis powers during World War II. Over the decades, the service has covered wars, the creation of new nations and the independence of others, while grappling with its identity and shifting government faith It's quite a brew. The story of Radio Australia has been compiled into a book by journalist and former presenter Dr Phil Kafkaloudis. It's titled Australia Calling, the ABC Radio Australia Story. It was published late last year to coincide with the ABC's 90th birthday and it just got a bit lost in that frantic couple of months and we promised we'd have him back in the new year. So Phil, welcome back. Thanks, Geraldine. How are you? Very good. And I might add that the <laughs> the online coverage of the the interview we did with you about changing Greek names has got two hundred and fifty thousand people. Have oh yes, read what a it. Star. Yes. So there we are. We thought this is, <laughs> this is a vote of confidence in you. Look, tell us about the birth, would you please, of Australia Calling and the role of the then Prime Minister Robert Menzies, who made that first broadcast. What did he say beyond those words we heard? Well, yeah, that it's time for Australia to speak for itself, which is the most interesting thing for him to say, being such an Anglophile. Remember, it was only 25 years later in 1963 when he said he was British to the bootstraps Mm. and he did but see her passing by, referring to the Queen, but I love her till I die. He, at that point, made it very clear that he was British as much as Australian. So if we go back to 1939 when he first became Prime Minister in his first stint, to say these words is quite extraordinary, but he said it under some pressure because what we had were... The Axis powers, I think, I don't know we actually called them the Axis powers as such then, but they would become that. And this was Italy, Germany, Russia, Russia being part of, of the, the group. And they were putting out a whole lot of propaganda against Australia. They were seen, because Australia was one of the first countries to join England in the fight, in Great Britain, in the fight to uh, against Germany. So they were saying some pretty extraordinary things at the time that were quite, I suppose you could say, a little bit nasty. But one of the things that I thought was most interesting was, I think it was Russia, who said that Australia stole this land from the Indigenous people, didn't give them recompense and uh, have treated them badly ever since. And this is one of the things that Bob Menzies was so angry about, that how dare they say something so wrong? Well, I think, Geraldine, looking back, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, you go, well, they might have had a point, you know. (laughs) But they they were saying a whole lot of things like that, you know. Who did they hope to reach? Who did they think was listening? How far did the signal reach? This was it, the extraordinary thing about shortwave. And 
I was talking to one of your producers yesterday who didn't have much of a, a history, a knowledge of shortwave, and that was the thing. When I was a kid, um, and I'm not that old, but when I was a kid, the radio sets that we had in the house all had the shortwave band. We never listened to them, but shortwave was extraordinary. We could listen to Radio Cairo. We could listen to Belgrade. We could listen to anyone because shortwave, it was basically very – it took a lot of power – but it was set and forget. You pointed at the transmitter in a certain direction and it went and went and went. So we, Radio Australia, had um, transmitters, shortwave transmitters in Shepparton in Victoria. And those shortwave transmitters, they weren't the strongest in the world, but they were pretty strong. They could go either across Australia, bouncing off the clouds, their signal could reach Eastern Europe or they sometimes could go under the um, the world. They could go under Antarctica and go to the same place on the <laughs> other side of the world. It was extraordinary when you consider that FM reaches a maximum of, what, 50 kilometres or so if there's nothing in the way. This stuff could go anywhere. So what Russia, Germany, um, the, 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 the Vichy France... Um, group were trying to do was to send this information everywhere. They were trying to destabilise um, Australians who were living overseas. They were trying to dishearten um, any British troops that may have been on the other side of the world. They were hoping to get anybody. Gee, the more really. things change, the more they stay the same. I mean, this is yeah, exactly right. what we talk yeah. about now, isn't it? Really? Um, In fact, there was a great concern from what I read uh, uh, that the Australia's workers would be interrupted, you know, who are so critical for for, uh, the war effort, and that this was part of the logic behind um, setting up uh, Australia Calling. Yes, and it was. It was was one of those things that what they were hoping to do was to make sure that they could reach and uh, Australia Calling could reach people, especially in other countries, especially in northern in northern Australia, there wasn't a lot of ABC either. And so they were seen as being a possible first front for, mm. for Japanese coming down. So by reaching them, it was about morale, as I was saying before, but it was morale for Australians as well in those parts of the countries. Mm. But also when you look at the, the areas that the British had annexed, and we're talking Singapore here, we're talking different parts of Southeast Asia, but also in um, in Africa as well. So there were presences that the, the British Empire had and um, and they were trying to reach them to, um, to keep their, their morale up. We've yeah. just got to sort of hop over a bit because um, when Robert Menzies came back to the leadership in 1949, um, uh, I think it was called... Now, actually, in the post-war era before him, the service got this new name, Radio Australia. Uh, did it have a different remit then? Because it wasn't oh. doing all the anti-propaganda stuff, I assume. It didn't have to do – it didn't do that anymore. And what had happened, that after Menzies had gone, um, it became a Labor government. And we had in the Labor government um, the uh, immigration minister was Arthur Corwell. We had um, we had our foreign minister was Bert Evert, and they struggled to get control of it. Because what Arthur Corwell wanted to do was to have it as a tool for him to – publicise his uh, post-war immigration scheme. So he was sending it into 
um, the camps in in Europe to try to convince people to come to Australia. Bert Evert saw it as a completely different thing. It should be a political tool to get Australia's voice, Australia's policies into the rest of the world. So there was this struggle. At one stage, they both agreed to look after it. It's a part of the book that's this politics, this childish kind of politics about using this um, this service. But the fact was, you're right. I mean, after the war, what was the point? Why have Radio Australia? And, and I discussed well, this is what, what, what the point was, you know, that, that it had different views at different times. Yes, but this did play out when Robert Menzies returned to the leadership in 1949. It led to the first of a number of what you could call near-death experiences uh, for the service, didn't it, which had oh. actually been his brainchild. And it, it, was, it was cut to the bone until an extraordinary intervention, which I want you to outline, please. Yes. he When he got back in power, not in... 49, one of the things they were going to do, because Percy Spender, who was his external affairs minister, listened to it when he was overseas and said, I don't like that program. He didn't like a music program, apparently. And this is, <laughs> these are the little things that the fates of a whole broadcaster can rely can lie on. And he didn't like it. So when he became the external affairs minister, Menzies, he'd convinced Menzies, we don't need this anymore, get rid of it. It wasn't costing anything, but that was by the by. And so he, um, they were going to kill it. Then they got an extraordinary letter, and this is something I found. It, was, it wasn't in the ABC archives. It was in a newspaper report at the time that I went, I can't believe this. British MI5, the Secret Service, it's now the domestic Secret Service, but then it was also responsible for International Secret Service. It contacted Menzies and said, you mustn't, you mustn't dismantle Radio Australia. It's, it's transmitters are so strong, it's getting behind the Iron Curtain. So this is our only way, really, of getting in contact with them. And when you think about the BBC was around at the time, but obviously they weren't able to get their signal cleanly into Eastern Europe. Australia did. And so they um, they said don't do it and the uh, Britophile Menzies... Changed his mind. It. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> in did. fact, it actually overtook the BBC in that you said it was a poll known as the Oscar of International Broadcasting. So that's really, you know, quite an amazing achievement. But I, I have to do a but. One of the biggest changes at Radio Australia happened at the turn of the century, this century, when it switched from shortwave to FM transmission. Now, you've, you've already just sketched how important that shortwave was, which I used to think was incredibly arcane <laughs> when I was in the early <laughs> But it may not seem important to the average person, but clearly it made a huge difference. Oh, yeah. When it, that was when I was hired to host the, the breakfast program. We'd been on shortwave since 1939, and Jean-Gabriel Mongui, who was the head of Radio Australia, he decided he was going to, and, and talked to Mark Scott, obviously, got the agreement of the board, to set up FM. Now, FM doesn't travel as far, so you need not just one station. It's not like Sydney, FM, that's it. We were broadcasting to the Pacific, Samoa, Tonga, Niue, Vanuatu, Fiji, so many different places on shortwave. So what he had to do was to make a lot of changes, but one of them was set up FM transmitters in each of those countries. So people, and it was the new way of doing it, people, the, the listenership on shortwave was really going south. 
and they wanted to reach locals more. And the truth was shortwave was by that stage being listened to by a lot of expats, but people, but locals weren't listening to it so much. They were certainly in the 60s, but not anymore. They'd moved to this new fabulous FM. It's in their car. They can do it. So he was making that change. And at the same time, he pushed into Asia because the focus had been for many years the Pacific. So Jean-Gabriel decided we're going to go into as many Asian centres as we could, set up FMs in Cambodia, in Laos, East Timor, um, which is on the cusp, of course, between the Pacific mm. and Asia. So there was this big push that happened in 2005 and also online and podcasting. It was a most extraordinary time to host a program, I can tell you. Well, you you must just quickly, if you can, summarise, because you do make that live in your book. Um, The the tip-offs that came to programs like yours about dramas that were underway that the news department didn't even know about. Yeah, well, this is one of the other changes that happened with this because Jean-Gabriel realised you've got to um, have a flow or a live program so that if anything did happen, we could cover it. And that was part of the brief I put to him when I was putting the program together. And so I remember there was only a couple of years after the program started, we got a text from a listener in Dili in East Timor saying something's happened at the presidential palace. There's somebody lying on the road. Um, and I don't know what it is, but can you check it out? And, of course, the great joy of Radio Australia was we had a great set of reporters who had inns in all of these countries. So within two minutes, he confirmed, Campbell Cooney his name was, he confirmed that there had been a... um, an assassination attempt on José Ramos Horta, the Prime Minister, and Shanana Guzmao. Um, And so we were able to go live for three hours, going to the place and report continuing developments. Mm. And that's something you couldn't have done years ago without live programming. It was it was mm. probably one of the highlights of my time as a reporter. And then he was, he was yeah. flown to the Darwin Hospital, saved his life. I remember all of this. Um, Extraordinary. It was. It was extraordinary. Look, the mid 1990s. Uh, this is re- with the return of the Liberal Party uh, and the government under John Howard saw yet another brush with death, and this time it was saved by the then Foreign Minister Alexander Downer, um, who used to say, "You know, they should have a statue of me in the foyer in Melbourne. If it wasn't for me, it would have would have been closed. No one else cared. So why didn't anybody else care?" Yeah, Alexander Down was very funny. When I interviewed him for the book at the end of it, he said, and when's it being launched? And I said, what, the book or the statue? <laughs> oh, he thought that was very funny. No, no, why didn't anyone care? It was simply because they didn't know. And I say in, early in the book that when I say I worked at Radio Australia, they go, oh, I listen to, yeah, I listen to Fran and Geraldine all the time. I'm, no, no, that's Radio National. I listen to Radio Australia. And that happened for the entire nine years. You know, people kept confusing it because they didn't know about it. It was offshore. Although you could access it online, people did not know. So there was no political capital in uh, in Radio Australia and, and, for and yet, Australians. Well, no, and yet... You know, as apparently Downer felt, it was such an arm of soft power, uh, which I think is sort of very obvious. But so there's something the matter there with its presentation, isn't it? If if it if it's if it just kept kept having these near death experiences and didn't somehow capture real um, 
sort of advocates and um, people who looked after it inside Australia. Yeah, well, that, that, that's the political side of it. And I think part of the the rationale for writing this book was, yeah, we need to get the profile up and we need to let politicians know. So, But what's interesting is that I interviewed Penny Wong, Kevin Rudd, Alexander Downer, as you know, Zed Cecila, who was the Minister for the Pacific at the time. They all said it's incredibly important. So they were all aware of it and we've since had we, they, I'm no longer working there, but but they've had um, a little funding increase enough to keep it going. It is the most economical radio station in um, probably in the world. It's international, certainly. So it doesn't cost a lot for people to do this stuff, to have this um, communication. But the sad thing is that when it's had one of its near-death experiences, you lose audience with it. Um, people like to wake up to a voice that they know mm. and listen at a certain time to a voice they know. And when you keep cutting things, it just damages. So hopefully it will now find um, a stability well, so that people can... It, it, well, how, how would you describe its... its position now, more secure? I mean, particularly given its reach into the Pacific, which is, you know, our new great interest. Yeah, well, that's right. And that's what the last part of the book was about. I wrote the last part of the book and then um, Claire Gorman from ABC International said, can we do a little bit more analysis there? And that's when I interviewed the politicians about its place in the world and its place within Australia's communications, within Australia's diplomacy. And um, and it was so interesting that all the politicians said it is so incredibly important. They were, it was like talking to 10 Alexander Downers, you know. They were all going, we can't not have a voice in the Pacific. So this is going to be something that will spread. I know the plan is to have more FMs in more places around the Pacific. But, you know, with the move of China... Um, there is geopolitical change happening across the Pacific. It's getting some interest now. They're closest neighbours. We've got climate change affecting many of these countries. Certainly um, financial issues are a big issue. We need to be in contact. They need to know who Australians are. Right. And Joseph Nye's talk about um, having soft diplomacy is exactly right. Just to hear us, they know the sort of people they are. And whenever I travel the Pacific, and people, people, you know, say, I listened to you as I was a kid, which made me feel very old. But they, they knew me and they knew what an Australian voice was. All right. Well, look, Phil, thank you. We've got a lovely text here. Um, my sisters and I have always been proud that our mother, Kathleen Logue Letters, played the violin for the opening of uh, VLI, and that's Francis Letters from Armadale's <laughs> New South Wales. Look, thank you, Phil. It's very interesting. Maybe we'll have to do a regular cross or something rather with Radio Australia. I'm thinking about it. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Phil, for, uh, for doing all this work. Thanks, Geraldine. That's a great. Australia Calling, the ABC Radio Australia Calling, Phil Kafkaloudis, uh, and that is out in the bookshops now. Well, uh, up next, will travel in 2023 be filled with the same high prices and lost luggage as last year? Find more great ABC RN stories that take you beyond the headlines on the ABC Listen app.